0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Picture this. You've got to cross the Neva River in Russia, but you don't make it to the Latini Bridge on time. As the drawbridge rises to the sky, so does the outline of an enormous phallus that's been painted on the bridge. Illuminated by street lights and a whopping 224 feet long, this ballsy piece of graffiti was on display for hours until the bridge lowered. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the
1: third installment of our infrequent series, We Can't Have Nice Things. This time, we're going pretty basic. We're looking at the people who, if you capitalize their name, are a 5th century Germanic who ravaged Gaul and Spain, settled in Africa, and sacked Rome, but with a lowercase v, it's someone who, through ignorance or malice, ruins something that's not theirs. A vandal. Their motives range from greed to anger to unchecked egomania. Some get caught while others get away to screw things up somewhere else. If researching this script has taught me anything, one characteristic they all have in common is that nothing is sacred to them. Often literally. Native American monuments and rock art dot the Lake Mead National Recreational Area. They're considered sacred by the local tribes as their birthplace, and they're registered with the National Registry of Historic Places. In 2010, park rangers were summoned after someone reported people firing paintball guns in the area. They found paint splattered across the sacred rock art. Park rangers had to remove hundreds of paintball shells from the canyon and found 38 areas with rock art that had been splattered. The culprit was a 20-year-old man who didn't realize that his crack-shot aim would earn him more than a year in jail as well as $10,000 in fines and 50 hours of community service after he pled guilty to multiple charges. If you're thinking of dipping your toes into the wide world of graffiti art, maybe don't turn the country's most treasured national parks into your experimental canvas. And if you're brazen enough to do just such a thing, do not, we repeat, do not brag about it on the internet. A New York woman, known originally only by the Instagram handle Creepy Ting, later identified as one Casey Knockett, got in a geyser's worth of hot water after journeying through ten of the most breathtaking sights of natural beauty in our country, including Yosemite, Crater Lake, Sequoia, Joshua Tree, Zion, and Bryce National Parks, and vandalizing them with acrylic paint. Naturally, she then posted pictures of the indiscretions on Instagram and Tumblr, sharing her illegal activities with the world. In a particularly cringeworthy comment exchange, Creepy Tings admitted that she was using acrylic paint and not chalk for her work. A commenter responded with a scathing, frowny face emoticon, to which Creepy Tings replied, I know, I'm a bad person. I tried reading that without sarcasm. It's simply not possible. She went on to say in another comment, It's art, not vandalism. I'm an artist. I also tried reading that one not petulantly. Again, couldn't do it. You're something, all right, creepy tings. The 23 year old woman was sentenced to two years probation and 200 hours of community service after pleading guilty. As part of her punishment, she's also banned from setting foot on any national park land during her probation which is 84 million acres spread out across all 50 states. Our state and federal parks are full of natural wonders, like forests, waterfalls, and rock formations, which are centuries, if not millennia, old. You can learn more about them from a great podcast from a friend of mine, Everybody's National Parks. Do check that one out. Take, for instance, the rocks that have stood in the Goblin Valley State Park in Utah. They'd only been there for 170 million years. They might fall over at any second and hurt someone. At least that was the excuse given by a duo of Boy Scout leaders, or rather, former Boy Scout leaders. The two men filmed themselves knocking the rock formation over and cheering wildly, and naturally they posted it online, where it soon became the focus of national and even international outrage. Though they claimed the toppling was for the greater good, both men still pled guilty to criminal mischief. This kept them out of jail, but they had to pay $925 in court costs, $1,500 to cover the cost of the investigation, and an undetermined amount to erect signs around the park warning visitors not to vandalize the rock formations. Signs that, before they got there, hadn't been needed. Their tale gets even more salacious, One of the men, shown literally moving a boulder, was out of work at the time after a car accident, and had sued the father of the teenage driver in the other car weeks before the trip to Goblin Valley, claiming that he was in debilitating pain. People like that are the reason that people with legitimate claims have such a hard time in the legal process. China is very sensitive about its international reputation, which probably explains why a single act of tourist vandalism committed by a Chinese citizen while overseas created a social media uproar in 2013. The controversy began when a Chinese traveler logged onto the social media website Weibo and posted a snapshot of the 3,500-year-old Luxor temple carving showing a man whose torso had been scratched over with the phrase, Ding Jinghao was here. The photo quickly went viral, prompting online outrage, and in less than 24 hours, netizens had publicly identified Ding Jinghao as a 15-year-old middle school student from Nanjing. Amid online declarations of national disgrace and social media death threats, why is that our go-to response to everything? Ding's family came forward to express their regrets in a local paper. We want to apologize to the Egyptian people and to people who have paid attention to this case across China, Ding's mother stated, adding that the boy had cried all night out of shame over the incident. And Ding should be ashamed, but he's hardly the first. The defacement of a priceless antiquity is only one example of a tourist tradition that's as old as tourism itself. In Travel in the Ancient World, historian Lionel Casson notes that evidence of tourist vandalism dates back to at least 2000 BCE, when a high official under Mentuhotep III chiseled his name and accomplishments into the sandstone of Wadi Hammamat near the Red Sea. Elsewhere, at Giza, scratchings on a temple wall, dated to 1244 BCE, read, Hadnakte, scribe of the treasury, came to make an excursion and amuse himself on the west of Memphis, together with his brother Panakti. Scribes, perhaps unsurprisingly, accounted for the bulk of such graffiti, as they were about the only people who could write back then. And Kasson notes that their inscriptions follow a fairly standard format. Scribe so and so of the clever fingers came to see the temple of the blessed king thus and such. Most such messages were painted onto monuments with a brush, or scratched into the stone with a sharp point. The Golden Age of graffiti on Egypt's tourist circuit monuments coincided with the heyday of Imperial Rome, and underwent a more modern renaissance in the 19th century, as Industrial Age Europeans fanned out across what was then known as the Near East, leaving thousands of inscriptions in their wake. So common was the practice of scratching one's name into Egyptian monuments that French writer Francois René de Chateaubriand, having no time to visit the pyramids during an 1806 Egypt sojourn, sent an emissary out to engrave his name for him. One has to fulfill all the little obligations of a pious traveler, he noted in his journal. Italian explorer Giovanni Belzoni is as much remembered for his prolific graffiti as for his contributions to Egyptology, and for the large Belzoni inscription he left on the walls of the Ramesseum. The French novelist Gustave Flaubert was not impressed by the graffiti he found during an 1850 journey through Egypt. One is irritated by the number of imbeciles' names written everywhere, he wrote noting with particular irritation the name and address of a certain Parisian wallpaper manufacturer that had been written in black letters at the top of the Great Pyramid. In Alexandria, he added, A certain Thompson of Sunderland has inscribed his name in letters six feet high on Pompeii's pillar. You can read it a quarter mile away. It's apparently a fairly common thing for tourists to carve their initials into the 2,000-year-old Colosseum also. In the most recent publicized incident, which happened in 2015, two U.S. tourists used a coin to carve their initials into the ancient stadium, and then took a selfie because, of course, they took a selfie. The tourists, both women in their 20s, were almost immediately arrested. Two Brazilian men were arrested after sustaining injuries in an attempt to climb over a Colosseum gate in the early hours of the morning. One suffered a fractured hip bone. That same day, Two spray-painted words were found in the Colosseum, although authorities didn't immediately link the two incidents. Numerous signs placed around the Colosseum in Italian and English warn that damaging the stadium in any way is illegal, but situations like these have actually increased in recent years due to cuts in security staff. It doesn't help that many tourists view the crumbling Colosseum in a more dismissive light than other better-preserved monuments. The greatest mystery of Easter Island may not be the original purpose of its enormous statues, but rather, why did a Finnish man think it was a good idea to rip off one of the giant head's earlobes? The Finn in question, Marko Kulju, was visiting the Rapa Nui National Park when he decided to get himself a souvenir from a 13-foot Moai statue. Local authorities were understandably miffed. Fortunately, this type of thing does not happen every day, said a government official. But it does happen, and it's almost impossible to control, because on Easter Island, there are sites of great archaeological value everywhere, and the park guards cannot prevent all such incidents. Just as there is usually a silver lining if you look for it, some graffiti can actually act as a record. Archaeological traces of the Vikings have been found in many of the places where they traveled to and settled. Such traces include ruined stones, burials with their grave goods, and even ships. One of the places the Vikings ended up was Constantinople, or Istanbul for those not familiar with their they-might-be-giants the capital of the Byzantine Empire and one of the greatest cities in Europe at the time. During the second half of the 10th century CE, a prince of the Kievan Rus, sort of precursors of Russia, named Vladimir, was forced to flee to Scandinavia as a result of civil war with his brothers. Once in Scandinavia, Vladimir assembled an army of Norse warriors known as Varangians, returned home and defeated his enemies. But Vladimir couldn't afford to pay his mercenaries. The Varangians didn't seem eager to return to Scandinavia either, and demanded to be shown the way to Miklagard, the name they used for Constantinople. Around that time, the Byzantine Empire, Basil II, was requesting military aid for the purpose of putting down some revolts and defending his throne. Thus, Vladimir sent 6,000 Norsemen to Constantinople. One of the possible marks left by the Barangians in Constantinople are two pieces of graffiti on the Hagia Sophia. The graffiti can be found way up on a parapet on the top floor of the former basilica's southern gallery, an area traditionally reserved for the Empress and her court. The first of these graffiti, which are in the form of runic inscriptions, wasn't discovered until 1964. The runes correspond to the letters, approximately, F-T-A-N, and are thought to be part of the graffiti writer's name, Hafton. The rest of the description is largely considered to be illegible. A second inscription, discovered in 1975, transliterates as A-R-I-K. The person who carved that is believed to be called Ari. Ari. It's known that the Varangian Guard fought for the Byzantines but were deployed to other parts of the empire as well. Another example of Viking graffiti can be found on a marble statue of a lion, which now stands at the entrance of the naval dockyard in the Venetian arsenal. Prior to its current location, the lion stood in the Piraeus, the ancient harbor of Athens. That's probably where it was when runes were carved onto its shoulders and flanks. The graffiti was first recognized as runes by a Swedish diplomat in the 18th century. Unfortunately, as a result of weathering and other damage to the lion, the inscriptions had faded to the point that it's now effectively impossible to decipher. Though, according to Erik Breit, a Swedish linguist and runologist who took a crack at the lion runes in 1919, the inscription was carved in memory of a fallen Viking by the name of Horse. Interestingly, there is a runestone at Ullanda in Upland, Sweden, which commemorates someone named Horse traveling to Greece. Speaking of interesting asides, you've probably heard creation stories from a number of world mythologies, but how many stories do you know that talk about how death came into the world? Well, that is one of this month's bonus mini-episodes for our patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. And to our members, including Baron, Amber, Dan of the Bunny Trails Podcast, and I'm so embarrassed that I didn't recognize that name was you, Troy, and Sean, as soon as all of our patrons have responded with the name they would like carved on their custom keychain, we'll get those made and out in the mail to everyone. So please make sure that your mailing address is on your member profile. And thank you again to everyone who has supported the show, whether it's financially or more importantly, sharing with others that's the single best way to help your favorite podcasts telling your friends and family about them
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and Six one since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
1: With artifacts and historic sites aside, the next most common magnet for graffiti is art. An original edition of Auguste Rodin's iconic 1881 sculpture, The Thinker, had occupied the front steps of the Cleveland Museum of Art for over 50 years, when, in early 1970, it fell victim to a pipe bomb, which police believed was planted by the same members of the radical terrorist group The Weather Underground, who were later killed in the explosion of the Greenwich Village townhouse that served as their bomb-making facility. The blast tore off the lower legs and part of the boulder that the thinker sits on, rendering it beyond repair. But museum officials decided to put it back in place because it was one of the last casts supervised by Rodin himself. Tangential bonus fact. When the heads of the early children's television workshop which produces Sesame Street and is not owned by Disney, while the Muppets unfortunately are, first laid eyes on puppeteer Jim Henson with his shoulder-length hair, full beard, and fringed leather jacket, one of the execs worried that he might have been part of the Weather Underground. Turns out, just a guy who's good at making puppets. Like businesses too big to fail, there are works of art that seem too famous to vandalize. But fame draws taggers like roadkill draws flies. The Mona Lisa, or to give her her Italian name, La Gianconda, has long been attracting vandals and is currently one of the best-protected works of art in the world. In 1956, the lower part of the painting was severely damaged when a vandal doused it with acid while it was on display at a museum in Montauban, France. Later the same year, a young Bolivian man threw a rock at the painting. This resulted in the loss of a few specks of pigment near the left elbow, which restorers later painted over. In April 74, a handicapped woman, upset by the museum's policies regarding disabled access, sprayed red paint at the painting while it was on display at the tokyo national museum in august of 09 a russian woman distraught over being denied french citizenship threw a mug purchased at the louvre gift shop at the painting luckily it shattered against the protective case which is made of bulletproof glass and in both of those last two incidents the painting was undamaged In February of 1974, a 30 year old man walked into the third floor galleries of the Museum of Modern Art and proceeded to deface Pablo Picasso's Guernica by spray painting Kill All Lies across it in red foot high letters. Call the curator, he reportedly shouted as guards grabbed him. I am an artist. You think that's brash? This vandal actually alerted the Associated Press in advance of his art. Rather than sending him to jail, though, the Museum of Modern Art declined to press charges, and the man himself later became a hugely successful art dealer. Aside from garnering publicity, his motives were unclear, with him sometimes calling it an anti-war protest, and other times a retroactive collaboration with Picasso. As for Guernica, Picasso had stipulated that the painting, completed in 1937 and inspired by the Spanish Civil War that led to fascist rule, be repatriated to his native Spain once democracy was restored. It was returned in 1981 and currently resides, under bulletproof glass, at Madrid's Museo Nacional Centro de Art Riena Sofia. Guernica was Picasso's reaction to the bombings by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy of the Basque village that gives it its name. It said that in occupied Paris, a Gestapo officer barged his way into Picasso's apartment, pointed at the mural, and said, Did you do that? Picasso replied, No. You did. Someone should have been on watch over Rembrandt's night watch. In January 1911, an unemployed Navy cook tried to cut it with a knife, but couldn't get through the thick varnish on the painting. In 1975, William de an unemployed schoolteacher, cut dozens of zigzag lines in the painting with a knife before he was wrestled away by guards. The day before, de had been turned away from the museum because he arrived after closing time. After the event, he was identified as having a mental disorder and was sent to a psychiatric hospital. It took six months to restore the painting, and traces of the cuts can still be seen. In 1990, a man threw acid on the painting, but guards reacted quickly and were able to dilute it with water so that it only penetrated the varnish layer, not damaging the painting itself, and it was able to be restored. In 85, Rembrandt's 17th-century painting, Donet, was attacked in the Hermitage Museum in Russia. A man, later judged not culpable due to mental illness, first threw sulfuric acid on the canvas, then cut it twice with a knife. Which begs the question, where is everybody getting all this acid from? The entire central part of the composition was virtually destroyed. The restoration took 12 years, from 85 to 97. Since then, that painting, too, has been behind bulletproof glass. In March of 1914, militant suffragette Mary Richardson walked into the National Gallery of London and attacked Diego Velázquez's tasteful nude painting, Rockaby Venus, with a meat cleaver. A quick aside, the name of the painting is actually Toilette de Venus. should probably be inflected in Spanish, but I took French in high school. The original meaning of toilette or toilet did not mean the commode, the place of evacuation, but more of a vanity area or the act of getting ready, which is why perfume is called eau de toilette. Richardson's actions were ostensibly provoked by the arrest of fellow suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst the previous day, although there had been early warnings of a planned attack on the collection. Richardson left seven slashes on the painting, all of which had been successfully repaired. Richardson was sentenced to six months in prison, the maximum allowed for the destruction of an artwork. In a statement to the Women's Social and Political Union shortly afterwards, she explained, "'I have tried to destroy the picture of the most beautiful woman in mythological history as a protest against the government for destroying Mrs. Pankhurst, who is the most beautiful character in modern history.' She added in a 1952 interview that she didn't like the way men visitors gaped at it all day long. In 1997, Alexander Brenner, a Russian-Jewish performance artist and self-described political activist, painted a green dollar sign on Kazimir Malevich's painting The White Cross. The painting was restored, and Brenner was sentenced to five months in prison. During the court case, he said in his defense, "...the cross is a symbol of suffering." The dollar sign is a symbol of trade and merchandise. What I did was not against the painting. I view my act as a dialogue with Malevich. A similar excuse was offered by Mark Bridger, an unemployed artist, who added even more controversy to an already edgy exposition at the Serpentine Gallery in London. Bridger targeted a Damien Hirst original, Away from the Flock, which showcases a preserved lamb set in formaldehyde. It looks like something you would see off to the side in an episode of Westworld. In 2006, Away from the Flock had sold for 1.8 million pounds, or about two and a quarter million dollars. Bridger entered the gallery, opened the top of the tank, and added black ink to completely cover up the lamb. To live is to do things, Bridger told the Guardian. I was providing an interesting addendum to the work. In terms of conceptual art the sheep had already made its statement. Art is there for creating of awareness, and I added to whatever it was meant to say. Luckily, the piece was restored overnight. And this strange idea of collaborating on art without the artist's consent went over a little better with Hearst than it did in our previous examples. He included a photo of the black sheep in a book he later published. Even educated people made today's list, A Hungarian-born geologist, Laszlo Toth, attacked Michelangelo's 1499 marble masterwork depicting the Virgin Mary cradling the dead body of Christ with a hammer, shouting, I am Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Toth struck La Pieta 15 times, breaking off Mary's arm at the elbow, as well as parts of her nose and eyelid. A group of bystanders, including an American who repeatedly punched him, tackled Tote almost immediately. The incident, which took place during the Pentecost on May 21st, was triggered by Tote's long-held fantasy that he was Jesus. He'd even written the Pope the prior year to demand he be recognized as the Messiah. Judged to be of sufficient mental defect, Tote never faced jail time for his actions, was committed to a mental hospital in Italy for two years, and eventually deported. Name the tools of a vandal. Spray paint, knives, hammers, acid is quite popular apparently. A shotgun. While hanging in London's National Gallery, a large charcoal drawing of the Virgin and Child with St. Anne and St. John the Baptist, created around 1500 by Leonardo da Vinci, was victim of a shotgun blast when one Robert Cambridge peppered the work with a shotgun he'd hidden under his coat. Though he fired from about seven feet away, the pellets themselves didn't damage the work. Ironically, shards from a section of protected laminated glass were pulverized by the blast and tore a six-inch hole in part of the drawing containing the Virgin Mary's robe. A 1988 restoration involved, quote, an elaborate process in which dozens of tiny fragments of paper were glued back together one by one. Cambridge, meanwhile, was confined to a mental institution after telling police he'd been motivated by his disgust with the policies of then-Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. What the Iron Lady had to do with Leonardo da Vinci remains unclear to this day. Mark Rothko's 1958 abstract piece, Black on Maroon, was defaced as it hung in London's Tate Gallery by one Volzimir's Eumaniac an artist, blogger, and sole proponent of an artistic philosophy he dubbed yellowism. I tried looking it up, and have no idea what I read. Using a black marker, he wrote a potential piece of yellowism in the painting's lower right-hand corner, adding the pseudonymous signature Vladimir Umanets. Umanayak spent the next year in prison, and after his release, professed some unconvincing regret in an editorial written for The Guardian. A large, tall, funnel-shaped metal structure originally fabricated in 2011, Dirty Corner was the creation of one of Great Britain's most famous contemporary artists, Anish Kapoor. In June of 2015, it was installed in France in the gardens of the Palace at Versailles, and thanks to its, we'll call it Georgia O'Keeffe-like shape, was immediately dubbed the Queen's Vagina. However, the objections to the controversial piece went far beyond naughty nicknames when someone threw yellow paint on it. After it was cleaned, the sculpture was again defaced, this time with anti-Semitic graffiti spray-painted in white, even though the artist is, in fact, Indian. Kapoor, who refused to have the piece cleaned a second time, blamed the second incident on France's poor treatment of its Muslim population. Sometimes, though, a vandal is the person you least expect. The frenzy of exultations, a famous painting by Podkowinski, showing a crazed naked woman riding a wild horse, caused a controversy and scandal in Warsaw art saloons after its 1894 debut. The exhibition lasted only 36 days because Podkowinski brought a knife on the 37th day and tried to destroy his work, focusing on the figure of the woman. The cause of his behavior had not been completely clear. It may have something to do with the fact that when Podkowinski painted it, he was already in the last stages of tuberculosis, and would die less than a year later. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But one more unusual case, which might not qualify as vandalism, occurred in 1908. An exhibition was set up for May of that year with paintings by Claude Monet, which had already been praised by critics and were estimated at $100,000. That's 1908 money. It's about $2.5 million today. Despite this, Monet decided he wasn't satisfied with his work, and in a sudden move, destroyed all of the paintings with a knife and a paintbrush. Ethics discussions broke out. Should an artist have the right to destroy his own work once it's on display? At least one expert thought so and praised him for being a true artist rather than a manufacturer, telling the New York Times, It is a pity, perhaps that some other painters do not do the same. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend, the neighbourhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and, of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the
0: history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.